Please open your scriptures to Matthew 26. The new year, 2020, is already taking form. And a comfort is that it is already being shaped globally, or we would say universally, uh, by God's sovereign rule. And locally or immediately, personally, by our own choices. Life is a series of choices. If you think about time as a succession of moments that involve decisions, actions, and reactions. Some of the decisions we've made this year have been simple. For instance, do I want scrambled or fried eggs? Easy decision for some of you. Or do I take the decorations down on the second or just leave them up until the next year? Easy, lazy decision, right? Uh, Studies estimate that an adult makes about 35,000 conscious choices each day. According to researchers at Cornell University, we make approximately 226 choices each day about food alone. Right? Krispy Kreme or Lamar's. Is that a, that's 12 choices, right? So they build up fast. Some choices are more complex, meaning they have more of a lasting effect. For instance, what is the first thing I will expose my mind and affections to each day? What will I put in and meditate on? How will I instruct my own heart? Do I speak truth to my heart and therefore my affections each day? Or who are are two or three people I will let influence my life today? And by the way, they're typically the people that you have invited in as your closest friends. They are shaping you. They affect your choices, your outcome of life. Or how will I respond to hurtful people and those in need? Not every choice is the same. Not every choice is about what kind of food. The more complex choices touch other people. They affect everybody in your orbit. This morning we're going to look at Matthew 26 with this title, Betrayed, Broken, and Poured Out. And this is the setting in Matthew 26 in his narrative account of the gospel of events that precede the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In Matthew's account, these events are punctuated by choices of individuals. So you have God's sovereign rule, his big plan but, but punctuated in that plan are individual choices that people are responsible for. Here's the setting, Matthew 26, verses 1 to 2. Jesus said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now note this. Don't, don't let this escape you, this part. Jesus possesses Knowledge of future events, not only his betrayal, he will be delivered up, but the method of his own death. He understands this, and yet he deliberately moves forward into the face of what is going to be an excruciating torture. The reason he does that is because he is on mission to save his people from their sin. Jesus illustrates his mission through vivid imagery. Matter of fact, we have a table this morning set to remind us to try to recall as best we can the imagery that Jesus used to say, this is my mission. In Matthew 26, look at verse 26. Now, as they were eating, 
Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it. You understand that for sake of functionality, we have little machine cut squares. But Jesus takes one of the whole pieces of unleavened bread and breaks it in front of them. Vivid imagery and symbol. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, those disciples would have never said, oh, this is really his flesh. They would have, the original audience never would have understood it that way. They would have understood it in the original language as this represents my body. This represents the mission that I'm about to accomplish. Verse 27, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. This represents my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, for more context, and what we mean by context is background and setting, look back up to verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So for Jewish people, this was an annual rhythm to celebrate what God had done in delivering his people out of Exodus. We remember this. And that deliverance culminated in a sign that actually gets a name. None of the other signs, the darkness, the hail, they don't get they don't get they don't get titles. They don't get named something. But but as as God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt culminates in the sacrifice of a lamb, and the applying of its blood on the doorways, that gets a name. And it's called Passover. Because when the death angel came through, he passed over the homes and did not touch the firstborn son of the homes that had the blood applied. Out of all the signs and wonders of God delivering his people, Passover is to be remembered because of a lamb and because of a son. Okay, so now the disciples come to Jesus. And they say, where would you like for us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? It's interesting that the Passover intersects with the cross work of Jesus Christ. If you think about Jesus, he is a son, the only begotten son that will not be spared from death and yet will also be the Passover lamb who will spare others, not just sons, but sons and daughters from death. And he's about to observe this annual feast that in bigger picture of the gospel is the mission he's about to accomplish. At this Passover, Jesus is both the son who will feel death's sting and the lamb who delivers from death's sting. Look at verse 17. Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said... Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. Now, up to this point, Jesus kept saying, my time is not at hand. It's not yet my time. It's not yet my time. Jesus, understanding the full events that are starting to unfold in the father's plan, he says this, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Verse 19, and the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Verse 20, it was evening. Jesus was reclining at the table. What is the next phrase? With who? With his closest companions. 
and they were eating the Passover meal. Now, a lot of us have etched in our mind when we read that Leonardo da Vinci's sort of well-known portrait of the Last Supper, where he's sitting at more of a European table, looking straight on and surrounded straight forward by the other disciples. That probably is not the most accurate picture of what is happening. In Jewish custom, Jesus was probably sitting at what is called a triclinium, which is a three-sided table with cushions around it, and they would lie down on their side, perpendicular, feet away from the center of the room, away from the food. They would rest on the elbow, and they would take the food, and they would eat. In this close sort of setting, Jesus is sharing that with his closest companions. As they were eating, Jesus brings up a very disturbing topic. Have you ever been at a, at a meal when somebody does that? It's like you thought everything was going just swimmingly. And then somebody brings up that awkward question or confronts another person. And you're like, this is not the time. Well, with Jesus at the table, this is the time. And he brings up the awkward topic of betrayal. Probably not the first thing they talked about because as they were celebrating the Passover, there's several cups of blessing and there's prayers. But as he's introducing this cup, he brings up this in verse 21. In Matthew, he doesn't record everything else that was shared at the table, but he does say this in verse 21. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, Matthew is, is intriguing to me as a writer because what Matthew does is he contrasts characters. Okay, this happens in a lot of great literature. Matthew, under inspiration by the Holy Spirit, is writing this account of Jesus and he's contrasting characters. He does this especially with Judas. And this is why, because Judas provides a stunning example, I want you to hear this, of those who follow Jesus only for what they can get out of him, rather than for their love for him and their service to him. For Judas, and anyone like Judas, Jesus is simply the next business opportunity that they can profit from. Judas' love for money contrasts with a woman's love for Jesus when she used her very expensive ointment on the Savior. Judas, entrenched in greed, had the gall to call the woman out for her act of worship. Matter of fact, John records it this way in John chapter 12. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? Which, interestingly, is the equivalent of 30 pieces of silver. It seems to be Judas's price tag all along. Why wasn't it sold and given to the poor? And I love the commentary that John expounds on. He says, he said this, because John knows now, as John's writing his account, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas is remembered for his choices. Judas' betrayal contrasts with another uh, sort of surprising event, and that is Peter's denial. You have Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial. Both men sinned. But each story ends differently because of their relationship to Jesus. Matter of fact, Jesus never asked Judas this question. A question he asked Peter three different times. He never asks Judas, 
Judas, do you love me? Do you remember when Jesus asked that to Peter when he was restoring him after three denials, three affirmations of love? He never asks Judas that question. Do you know why? Because Jesus already knows the answer. He already knows Judas's heart. Matthew 28, 11-3, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. Here Judas is contrasted now, actually equated with the tomb guards who could also be purchased. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Soldiers and religious leaders, both who knew the truth, but were willing to suppress the truth for political, religious, and financial gain. That's the group that Judas is lumped together with. Now, in Matthew 26, Jesus is talking about his death more often. Matter of fact, when the woman spends the expensive ointment, he says this, she has done this to prepare me for what? For my burial. Judas probably picks up on this, realizes Jesus' kingdom will not profit materially, and realizes that his bartering days are numbered. So what he does is he goes to the elders and he sells Jesus, this is very interesting, for the price of a slave in the Mosaic legislation. Exodus 21.32 says this, If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Matthew 26, 14 to 15, then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priest and asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. You know, it probably did not settle well with Judas that Jesus told his disciples this. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Never trust a man who remains close to Jesus only for his own personal comfort or advancement. Matthew 26, 20-21 says this, When it was evening, he, Jesus, reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, in one sense, the betrayal was already passed. Judas had already made arrangements. Coin was paid. People were willing to hurt and kill. That was already done. But the actual act of betrayal was yet future. Jesus is calling attention to that. So this pronouncement must have come as something of a surprise to Judas, who thought his actions were hidden. He thought he was stealth. Because what he didn't believe about Jesus that the other disciples did believe was that Jesus is the Son of God. So that took Judas by surprise. It was probably unsettling to the other disciples as well since they did not suspect each other. Certainly not one of their own. So it's not a surprise that they were sad. Verse 22, Matthew chapter 26. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another. I want you to feel this. Twelve of his closest companions sitting around that triclinium sharing a meal. And Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And to a man, they each look at him and say, is it I, Lord?
I think it surprises some readers that the other disciples didn't immediately like key in on Judas and say it's him. Right? It's got to be Judas. Haven't you been listening to the Sunday school lessons? They even have a picture of him betraying Jesus in the garden. It's him. Look, it looks just like the timeline's off to make a point. None of the disciples suspected that. Nobody was like, you know what? It's him. He was so clever and so camouflaged and so chameleon that they start questioning themselves rather than one of the other men they're sitting with. I'm sure after Judas's recommendation to sell the ointment for 300 denarii and give it to the poor, the other disciples were like, I should have said that. That was so godly. Right? That's Judas to them. Faithful steward, trusted companion, trusted to be able to carry the money bag. But instead of pointing the finger, they begin to question themselves. Here we are looking at the emblems of broken body and shed blood. Do we ever question ourselves? I do. I question me. And I don't always come up on the winning side. And I'm not talking about unhealthy introspection, but, but honest, objective evaluation. Lord, is it I? This is what we are called to do when we take these elements. 1 Corinthians 11.28 says, Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Is it I, Lord, who have failed to worship You in spirit and in truth? And come dressed like a faithful Jesus follower, and yet in my heart, I have just dark, hateful criticism. Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord, who's failed to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Is it I who have failed to love my neighbor as myself? Is it I who have failed to be honest? Is it I who have failed to help those in great need? We know it's Judas. We have the story now. But is it us? If Jesus in His omniscience and His sovereignty ever says, one of you is like this, do we ever stop and say, is it me? Or are we so quick to say, oh, it's them. Well, Jesus moves to provide a direct hint in Matthew 26, verse 23, Jesus answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You can, you can sense the dreadful seriousness of the moment. Eternity is hanging in the balances for one of the men in this room. Because that's why Jesus says this about Judas. It never says it about any other man. It would have been better had he never been born. Jesus makes two things very clear. First, Jesus' own death is completely in the will of God. That is a mystery. His would not be the hopeless death of a misguided martyr, but the fulfillment of divine purposes, the fulfillment of prophecy. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. Isaiah 53.10 says this. Just stop every other thought that's pulling at you right now and listen to what Isaiah prophesied about the crucifixion of the suffering servant. 
It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Son of Man goes, as it is written of him. God's sovereign plan is unfolding. But the second clear point is this. Judas is responsible. Even though Christ must be betrayed, it does not remove the responsibility of the one who chose to betray him. The betrayer is responsible for his betrayal. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And some kind of conscious punishment after death is implied in that statement. Because annihilationists, those who believe that once we die, we return back to nothingness, cannot say that. Right? That it would have been better for him not to be born because, well, that doesn't make any sense because that means when you die, it's done and you go back to nothingness. So this implies that we will give an account for our choices after death. And for Judas, his account brings this statement. It would be better had he never been born. Matthew adds a part to this narrative that we only find in his account in verse 26. You can see the weakness and the cowardice of this man at this point. When the others are saying, is it I, is it I, Judas jumps in as the chameleon that he is. And in verse 26, it says, Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? Probably hoping for a dismissive answer so he could sort of slither away. But Jesus said to him, Do you see it in the text, in the scripture? You have said so. You know, Judas knows you just as well as he knew Judas, just as well as he knew Peter, Mary, Martha, Pilate, John. Let that sink in. He knows you just as well. And since Judas now realized Jesus knew him that well, he slips out because he needs to cash in before his opportunity is missed. We observe communion this morning. The observation of communion, or also called the Lord's Supper, has occupied a large place in church life, often shrouded in elaborate ceremony and lofty liturgy. Some people have even been led to believe that taking of the bread and of the cup somehow give a sense of forgiveness, offer forgiveness, offer a new grace of cleansing The elements can never do what only Christ's death and shed blood can do. They offer no cleansing. They offer no merit with you before the Father. Jesus Christ alone is the merit you need. His life, His death, His resurrection. Jesus has become the new Passover Lamb. He is the meal that provides freedom, deliverance, and entrance into a new world. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus, who knows all things, knows that his death is going to be a sacrifice. Jesus is both the son who feels death's sting and the Passover lamb who delivers from death's sting. Remember this. In the original setting, Judas was sitting next to who? Or at least within the proximity of who? Of Jesus Christ. He's sitting at the table with the Passover lamb. 
He's actually sharing in the bread in the first Lord's Supper, as we would call it. And he's sharing in the cup. Let me ask you, what grace did that give to Judas? Nothing, because he never internalized it. He never applied it. That's the picture of the broken bread and digesting it and the cup and drinking it. You are personalizing it. You are internalizing it just like food. There's no life. There's no nutrients. Unless you take it yourself. So in origin, what we know as communion was a very simple observance connected to the Passover meal. There was no stipulated liturgical form, no silver dishes, no hierarchy of who passes the dish. It was basic and it was introduced in a basic setting, a small Passover observance as they were eating. This is what Matthew 26, 26 says. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So just before we observe the table, let me, let me ask you this question. Why bread? Why did he choose bread? Well, this meal was a symbolic act associated, yes, with Passover. Just like Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem and just like him turning over the tables of the money changers, these symbolize something bigger than the event themselves. Bread was a symbol See, Jesus didn't walk through the Passover meal and give an interpretation of the bitter herbs and all the different cups of blessings like maybe some of you have even participated in when a Seder is observed. He didn't do that. He didn't give, a, he didn't give an interpretation for every aspect of the Passover meal. What he did is he chose the two primary elements of the meal. The bread and the cup. And he gave a new interpretation to those. And he speaks of them in terms of his body. Now, it'll help you understand if we go back to John chapter 6 in the huge bread of life discourse. And I'm just going to read a portion of this in John chapter 6. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, he says again. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Bread and the cup. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Again, this is symbolic language. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Sustenance given by the Prince of Life. Jesus goes on and he says, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He's repeating himself for force. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, listen to what the disciples said. Maybe some of you were thinking this while you heard that. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them. Don't miss this part. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is my body. He breaks the bread. He will then go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. He will, he will arrive at night. And later on, Judas will arrive with the soldiers. Judas will give a fake kiss. He will give fake worship to make money. He will do that to Jesus Christ and sell him out. Jesus will be unjustly tried, scourged, which means his back will be filleted open. He will be punched. He will be spat upon. He will be hurt by a crown of thorns. He will be bludgeoned by a fake scepter to mock and hurt him. He will be humiliated. He will be hung naked and he will be pierced by nails. And he knows this as he's breaking the bread. This is my body. Given for who? Given for you. Jesus' body will be broken. It must be broken. As a matter of fact, it will be so broken that in our, that in our culture of comfort, the passage in Isaiah shocks us. Listen to Isaiah 52, verse 14. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human anymore. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. This is my body broken for you. Eat it. Perhaps even more shocking is why he was broken. Isaiah goes on in Isaiah 53, 4-7. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own way. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. 
The Passover lamb must be broken to give life. Must be broken so the death angel can pass over you and you can have eternal life. When you take the bread this morning, it's not about the form or the type of plate or if somebody's nervous or if, if, if we missed a row and we had to come back or about the towel or about the silver and the little symbols or about who's dressed how. If that's your focus, you've missed it. You've entirely missed it. It is about us proclaiming a message to one another that Jesus' body was broken for sin. And internalizing it gives us no grace, but it is a reminder that only in Jesus Christ are we forgiven. It's about Jesus broken on the cross for you. Sins you have done your whole life. Sins I have already committed in the five days of a new year. My body broken. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus' words, Take, eat, this is my body. And the meaning of those words are given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.26. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The bread is a proclamation, a sermon, if you would, to one another that this is our only hope. The death He died for you and me, a life He provides for you and me through His death and resurrection.